You may be seated. Good morning and happy new year to you. <clears throat> For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff here overseeing our discipleship ministries. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Uh, we're really glad that you've come and joined us on this first year of, or first day of a new year. Uh, and particularly that that might have meant you uh, joined us early on a Sunday morning after a late Saturday night waiting for the ball to drop. So if you were one of those crazy people who actually stayed up, uh, good for you. There are no medals for you, um, but I'll acknowledge you now. Either way, whether you stayed up or not, we're really glad you're here. Uh, you are jumping in this morning to uh, a series we've been in for a number of weeks now, uh, Waiting. We began this series in early December, and we designed it hoping that it would give us a chance to consider various passages in the Bible that talk about waiting for the Lord. This morning, we're going to consider what our aim in this life should be while we wait for God's return. What our aim in life should be while we wait for God's return. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open with me. We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 3. As you're turning there, I wonder if you've asked this question before. Why does God take so long to fulfill his promises? It seems like this is a pattern many of us know personally, but it's also a pattern that we see over and over again throughout scripture. Abraham waited 25 years for the birth of the promised son. Joseph waited over 20 years for his divinely given dreams to come true, that his brothers and his parents would bow to him. Israel waited 400 years for redemption from the house of slavery in Egypt. And even though some of these people received these promises of God, the book of Hebrews tells us that the promise that those saints were waiting for the most was the coming of Christ. And they died not ever receiving that promise. They waited their entire lives. So back to our original question. Why does God take so long? Let's narrow that down for us even a little bit more this morning. On this side of the cross, we know that we're waiting for Christ to return. This is the hope that the church has been looking forward to for almost 2,000 years. And why are God's purposes so long that we're still waiting for that second advent? But you know, we're not the first people to ask that question. Even 30 years after Jesus' ascension to be with the Father, the church was growing impatient. And their impatience was leading to foolish theological conclusions. That's what the book of 2 Peter addresses, is some of the impatient theological conclusions that scoffers have started to teach in the church. And so Peter has an answer for us this morning. Why does God take so long? I'm gonna begin reading 2 Peter chapter three and verse eight. You can follow along with me, it'll also be on the screens behind me. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This morning, we're going to consider three points in our passage. First, we'll consider a patient Lord. Then we'll consider a coming day. And finally, a righteous people. A patient Lord, a coming day, and a righteous people. As I've said earlier, 2 Peter is a book that says a lot about false teaching in the church. And in chapter 3, Peter addresses some of their teaching directly. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, these scoffers were saying, look at the world. The world hasn't seemed to change at all. Ever since the very beginning, everything just keeps going as normal. The sun rises, it sets, and then it just happens again. The seasons are coming and going, and they just keep on coming and going. And where is God? Where is his intervention? Where is he showing up to fix things? It's probably worth saying that it does seem like they're just asking a question, but it also seems like this simple question about God's timing reveals something about their hearts. These scoffers aren't asking a question from a place of trusting the Lord and waiting for him. This question's much more like an accusation. Where is God? Where is the promise of his coming? If we understand what Peter tells us in verse 8 correctly, we see that there's a caution that we need to listen to. We can become like these scoffers if we forget a truth about God. Peter tells us, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So today, don't overlook this. We don't know in months what we could be like and what posture of our heart could be like as we ask that same question. Why does God take so long? But don't overlook this one fact. The Lord is patient. He is not slow to fulfill his promises. In our feeble minds, he may seem slow, but he's not. There is absolutely no criticism that we could levy toward God at his timing. 
Marshall read for us Psalm 90 earlier. Peter references it in this passage. He says that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Do days feel like little blips on the radar to you? Not every day, I expect, feels just like it's flying by. But I bet every one of you has had the thought, wow, can you believe it's 2023 already? Where did the time go? Days just fly by. I still really vividly remember this. When I was in fifth grade at the end of that year, my teacher, Miss Nelson, said, it won't be long until you graduate from high school. And even as a fifth grader, I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I was less than halfway done with my like, for early education. And I thought, it's gonna be forever until I'm done with high school. And yet, time has come and passed. And the days have become weeks and weeks, months and months, years. And I'm already on the, uh, the other side of my first high school reunion now, which is crazy. And I'm sure you felt that too, that j days are just passing and clipping along. Peter tells us that our experience of watching days just pass on and on and on like that is like the Lord's experience of watching millennia go by. Thinking back to school, we spend entire years dedicating studies to historical classes and thinking about just the tip of the iceberg of what happened in history. And all of that time that we spend just getting the little tiny bit, God gets all of it in full. He knows the stories of everybody's lives and all of those thousands of years are like a free afternoon to him. So for the Lord, ages, eons, eras, and epochs go flying by. He's patient. And we must be careful with Peter's language here. It isn't that the Lord has some sped up perception of time so that things happen faster, so that you know, it's not like watching a, it's not like listening to a podcast on double speed where you can make two hours an hour, right? It's not that the Lord sees things happening faster. This is poetic language. Peter is trying to describe something that he has no personal experience of. How do you describe God's experience as God of things we experience as not God? We can't. But this language is apt and it makes sense to us that God is more, he's above us. The things that God thinks about are above our pay grade. And so, to us, days just clip on by in years and millennia are nothing to the Lord. And the point of all of this is that we can't judge God as being slow. We can't look at him and say, ah, this is taking too long. He's never been impatient. He knows the end from the beginning and he's working everything according to his marvelous purposes. So don't overlook this fact. This truth is certainly true of the second coming, which is what Peter's addressing in this passage, but this same truth about God is present in all of his promises, that God's patient in all of his promises. He doesn't deliver them late, nor does he deliver them early. He delivers them precisely when he means to. And there's no greater showing of his patience than the coming 
of his son, our Savior. Saints in the Old Testament waited for the promised hope, for that seed born of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent. And can you imagine how easy it would have been for them to say, what gives God? Where are you? Why are you taking so long? But Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that God sent Jesus when the fullness of time had come. Jesus came right on time. Perfect timing. Brothers and sisters, this is true for you at a very personal level too. Your salvation was at the perfect time. It wasn't too early, nor was it too late. It was right when God desired for it to be. Your growth as a Christian is right as God desires for it to be, as he's working in your life, leading you along. And the blessings that he brings to your life and the blessings he withholds from your life that you want so badly are all going according to his perfect timing. We trust a God that has a perfect plan with perfect timing and has perfect patience. And do you know what trusting in a patient God like that does for us? Well, it makes us people who can be patient and who can be content because we know we can wait. We can wait knowing that waiting doesn't jeopardize anything because God is true to his word. And church, even when we fail to trust his timing, because we will, we'll be anxious and antsy and we'll want it sooner even when we fail, we take solace that God sent his son and his son trusted his patient timing every day of his life. In John 2, we have a record of a time when Mary was encouraging Jesus to perform a miracle. And Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. Jesus knows the father's timing. He knows the father has a perfect plan and he knows the father is working all things. And Jesus isn't worried. He's not frantic. So why does God take so long? He's patient. There's even a little bit more here in this passage we need to get. Look with me in verse nine. He does not wish that any should perish. Instead, God wants all to come to repentance. The Lord is patient because he desires for more of his people to come to salvation. When Christ returns, there will no longer be an opportunity for salvation and repentance. Only judgment for sinners. And so his patience today is his mercy to a dead, sinful world. Every day is an opportunity for salvation and repentance only because God is a patient God. Now this verse, 2 Peter 3, 9, has become somewhat well-known for how it's used in theological debates. The issue that gets brought up regarding this is, does God desire that all people be saved? At first reading, that would certainly seem like that's what Peter's saying, right? He doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And now that may not seem immediately like a controversial question to you, but if that's how we should read this, then that... Conclusion is going to affect how we view other things about God's sovereignty and salvation. 
That would affect how we think of other doctrines in Scripture, like election or predestination. This is a good reminder that our theological convictions, like election or whatever else, should always be consistent with how we read individual passages of Scripture, right? We shouldn't hold theological convictions, come to Scripture that says something otherwise and go, I'm just going to ignore that and act like it doesn't exist. Instead, verses like 2 Peter 3.9 push us to be careful readers of Scripture, to ask good questions. And that's what I want to do with all of us this morning. So let's read this passage and see what is Peter getting at. So follow with me at the beginning of of chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. What's the promise he's talking about? I've alluded to it a lot, but how would I say I know the answer is right? Look with me in chapter 3, verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? What's the promise we're talking about? The return of Christ. So when we get down to verse 9, he's not slow to fulfill his promise. We're talking about Jesus coming back. Do you see this? We want to be people of the book. We want to read it carefully. So who is that promise to? The promise of his return. That's a promise given to his people, the church, his bride, his sons and daughters that he's left. And he says, I'm coming back for you. So he's not slow. What is he? He's patient toward you. Who's he patient toward? You. Who's the you? As Peter's writing this, who's the you on his mind that he's talking to that's receiving this letter? Well, if we went to the very beginning of this book, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Sounds like Christians. Sounds like he's writing to a church. In verse, chapter 3, verse 1, and then again in verse 8, Peter says he's writing to beloved. This would be an apt name for those who are beloved by God and amongst the family of God so that Peter can say, as my brother to these brothers and sisters, you are my beloved. Peter's writing to the church. So when Peter says, God's patient toward you, God is showing his patience to his church. By not sending Christ, he's showing patience to the church. And so we should ask, well, how is that patience? How is that patient to the church? Well, let's keep reading. Because God's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So now we ask, who is that any? Who is that all? Is it any person in all of creation, or is it the same people who are the promise of his return was given to? Is it the same people that God is being patient toward? It seems like the best way to read this is to say that Peter's saying that God does not desire that any who are called to be in the church would perish apart from coming to salvation. God is showing his patience to the church in not sending Christ by allowing time for unbelievers to come to faith and become his people. And church, hasn't that been true in your life? There's been 2,000 years since Christ left that promise, I will come back. And had he come back 13 years ago, I wouldn't be here. 
If he would have come back 30 years ago, many of you would have been excluded too. His everyday patience is so that his sons and daughters would come from death to life by hearing the gospel. How wonderful his patience is. And we see it on a personal level. And this passage comes alive when we see what God's done to us. He has shown remarkable patience. He could have come with judgment. He would have been right to come with judgment. But he waited. Next, let's consider our second point. A coming day. I think we've established God is patient. He's not in a rush. But his patience shouldn't lead any of us to think that that coming day has been canceled. No, it's coming. Listen now, Peter says this in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. This day of the Lord is not a new phrase that Peter's come up with. It's throughout much of the Old Testament, in fact. This day was the day that was much anticipated because God would return to save his people and to bring judgment on his enemies. And that same day is still coming. It will come. That ultimate, climactic, final day of salvation when the trumpets are blown and when those who trust in him get to see him face to face. That day is coming brothers and sisters. And friends, that day is coming for you too. The day of judgment. Listen now, Revelation 19 describes that day. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on that horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's what that coming day will be for God's enemies. It goes on to say that the armies of heaven will join in. Not just one enemy. The whole army of God, the Lord of hosts, will be coming for his enemies. It says that Christ will come with a sharp sword in his mouth. And he'll take it down to strike down the nations. This is a day of wrath. And it's coming. Peter says that that day is gonna come like a thief in the night. You may be like my wife and I, we prepare for thieves at our house. We lock our doors, we lock our windows, we have an alarm system, just so any of you try and get wise on us. Right? We're ready for you. Right? But what's the reality of things that you do every single day? Eventually it's become normal. I think the first day we lived in our house, we were far more on edge. What's, what might happen? Who knows? But now it's just normal. We're not ready. We're not expectant. We get lulled to sleep by normal preparedness. And so when thieves come, we're always caught off guard, right? Well, the same will be true for the world on that day. The world won't be ready. Peter describes a remarkable day, a day of total and complete destruction and burning of all that we know of this physical world. It says the heavens will pass away in verse 10, heavenly bodies will be burned up, the earth will be exposed. Later in verse 12, he says that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, 
Heavenly bodies will melt. Everything that we see will be destroyed and done away with because God is making all things new. Look in verse 13. God is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth, one that doesn't have corruption, that doesn't have desolation. But that's not the only thing being refined and changed and judged. So will we. Look in verse 10, the very last phrase. And the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. The works, the deeds and actions and intentions of all humanity will be brought to light. How do you feel about being exposed? Does that sound good to you? I would imagine exposure is a horrifying experience. Imagine it's one of the things that many of us don't want to happen. Isn't it such a temptation for us even coming to church on Sunday to put on a face and act like everything's okay? That's even just a tiny little bit of exposure. But this day, we can't run from it. And the exposure that will happen on that day is far greater than anything we can fathom in this world. Everything about us will be laid bare. And there will be nothing to cover up with and hide with. Does that terrify you? If you're not a Christian this morning, it should. You will be exposed and found out before or you'll be found out for who you really are. No longer will it be acceptable that you're better than the worst person you can imagine in our society. No longer will it be acceptable that you're kinder than the neighbor two doors down. All of your hidden thoughts, all of your intentions, everything you do behind closed doors will be brought to light. And it won't be that you're just exposed before other people and you feel bad that other people think differently of you now. You'll be exposed before your creator. The irony of all of this is that even now, he knows. You're just as exposed right now as you will be in that day. The difference is that in that day, you won't have the sense of secrecy and privacy that you feel right now. But there's another difference. The other difference is that there won't be any more patience on that day. But there's patience today because he hasn't come back. If you fear the exposure that will come on that day, do you see that this day is the day of patience and not of judgment? There is mercy right now for you to not have to fear that day. On that day, there will be nothing to cover you, but on this day, you can be covered by Christ. If you would come to him, he would forgive every one of your sins because he took it on himself and died in your place as your substitute. This is the coming day. This is what we're waiting for.
And this world on that coming day will be unlike anything we can imagine. Notice the descriptive phrase that Peter uses to describe this new heavens and new earth in verse 13. We await the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the distinguishing marker of this new world. And this leads us to our final point. A righteous people. We see Peter first introduce this idea in verse 11. But we see it even more clearly in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Beloved, we are waiting for a greater world. We're waiting for a world without all of this corruption and without sin abounding in our lives and in everyone else's lives and in every sphere of this world. We're waiting for that world with righteousness dwelling. And as we wait, we must prepare ourselves to be citizens of that world. The idea of citizenship is really helpful, I think, for us to think about now. When you've grown up in a particular nation and you call it home, there are generally some really obvious things about you that declare to everybody else that you're from a different world, right? Like how you dress, the language you speak or the dialect of a language, the food you enjoy, the things you celebrate or the pastimes you love. Like for instance, if you're from any other country in America, you really like soccer. That's a distinguishing feature that you're not from America if you love soccer, right? And I don't like soccer, so, yeah. So citizenship inherently means that there's gonna be characteristics about you that are different. And so even though we were born in this world and we've resided here our entire lives, this world's not our home. And we need to bear the distinctive marks of that future world to come. So we should talk like we're from that world. We should encourage others like we're from that world. We should spend our time and our money like we're from that world and not this one. We should raise our kids and talk to our coworkers like we're from that world and not this world. Our hobbies should reflect that world and not this world. In the same way that we get culture shock when we go to another culture or country, we should feel so out of our element in this world. And in the same way that when we hear or learn about other cultures, and sometimes it sounds odd that they do things that way, this world should hear and see what we do and think that we're totally nuts. We should be foreigners. We won't feel at home in that world if we don't feel uncomfortable in this world today. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican pastor, said it this way in his book, Holiness. Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures aren't your pleasures. Their tastes are not your tastes. Their character is not your character. How could you possibly be happy there if you're not holy on earth? 
We must bear the marks of our future country. We must be righteous. We must seek holiness and godliness now. So what do we learn from Peter in 2 Peter 3 about pursuing righteousness? First, thinking about Jesus' return should motivate us to pursue righteousness today. Let me be clear, the second coming shouldn't bring you to confusion, nor theological debate, nor should it take you outside looking at astronomical phenomenon. The second coming should lead us to pursue godliness. Or as Peter puts it in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There's a second thing we see about personal holiness. It's that pursuing righteousness in this life takes effort. In verse 14, Peter says that we should be diligent. Be diligent. This word is used in other places in the Bible, and this is how it's translated in other passages. Strive. Make every effort. Endeavor. Be eager to and do your best. So what's the idea captured in this be diligent? Oh, that it's hard work. Seeking holiness will be difficult, yet it's what we're called to do. And just because it's difficult and it requires personal discipline doesn't mean that it's legalism. We're not trying to earn our way to salvation No, we're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. And then we seek through personal discipline to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. For years, I thought that if I was pursuing holiness and it was difficult, then I was being legalistic. But that's foolish. Because that way of thinking forgets that the Bible has so many difficult sayings to Christians. Jesus said, cut off your hand. He wasn't a legalist. Paul says that he beat his body into submission so that he wouldn't be disqualified. He wasn't a legalist. And even Peter tells us to make every effort. So growing in holiness will require hard work. It won't be easy to put to death anger or selfishness or self-pity or pornography or passivity and laziness in spiritual things or alcohol, or other addictive things in your life. It will be difficult. But by God's grace, it will be sweet. There's a third thing we see, and it's that growing in holiness is something we willingly participate in. Peter commands us to do it. Be diligent. Make choices and decisions. Growing as a Christian is a work that's done by us and by the Holy Spirit. There's a partnership. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation. Work it out. For it is God who works in you. We work, God works. So we take steps in obedience to grow in personal holiness. We make plans. We talk to other Christians about it to hold us accountable. We sit down and open our Bibles. We pray. We confess. 
We show up. We make choices to put ourselves in the way of grace so that God would work by his spirit in us. So as we enter into a new year, what sorts of goals have you set for yourself? What are your ambitions? What does new year, new you mean to you? What would it look like for you to make every effort? What would it look like for you to be diligent to grow in personal holiness this year? Maybe that's even a question you write down and you think this week, this afternoon, I wanna think about this and actually write down some answers to what it would look like for me to make personal choices to strive toward holiness. But let me just say, we don't grow in holiness on our own. We grow in the midst of the community of the church. So look around you, to your left and your right. This is the grace that God has given to you. This body of believers is God's greatest grace to you. They're going to encourage you and motivate you and support you and instruct you in this process of growing in holiness and godliness. So maybe one of those things you need to jot down is just, I need to show up more. I need to participate in the life of our body more consistently. It's not that church, hol- that church attendance makes you holy, but it's that being amongst the brethren is a sweet mercy of God. Ryan even began our time this morning mentioning two upcoming events, our women's ministry, our membership class. These may be particular things you jot down as, I wanna grow in my knowledge of the word. I'm gonna jump into one of these studies in the, in the new year. Or maybe say, I've never been a consistent member of a church. I don't even know what a member of a church is. Come to our membership class. These are steps of obedience you can take to be diligent, to be found in him spotless. And we have a whole host of other ministries that we think are here to serve you, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Things like community groups, or we have a counseling ministry. We would love to talk to you, and we would love to walk alongside you. I know there's others in this room that wanna walk alongside other brothers and sisters to see them strive to be found in Christ without spot and blemish. May we make every effort to grow in righteousness this year. So church, our God that we serve isn't worried. He's not anxious. He's not checking the clock going, oh man, this is really taking a while. All things are going according to plan. Psalm 115.3 says this, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. If you can do all that you please, you're never worried about what's happening. And so don't overlook this fact. He's in control. You can trust him. He's patient. We can be too. And his daily patience gives us daily purpose. God has not returned. He's chosen in his divine wisdom for today to exist. We're here. He's not come back. 
And yet we have things to go do. We are called to be faithful now. And so as we begin this new year and anticipate that there's going to be 364 more days in a row until we're doing this again next year, we can have confidence that every single one of those days is God's purpose. Every single one of those days along the way is a day that God has designed, that God has planned, and we get to be faithful in them. And so what's he planned and purposed them for? For more people to hear the gospel, for more of his church to come to faith and be brought into the family. And we don't know who those people are. They don't have signs on their foreheads that say, I will believe, but I don't believe. Tell me the gospel. So we go out indiscriminately. And we talk about who God is. Maybe even today you're in this room and you've never trusted in Christ. Today's the day of salvation. Come talk to one of us here at the front or talk to someone nearby you. There is patience and mercy for you. Church, even though 2022, our word of the year was evangelism, let's not stop evangelizing in 2023. Let's see that every day that we wait, God is showing his perfect patience, allowing people to not perish. And let's pray for more opportunities. Let's pray more fervently for our missionaries who have that same opportunity. Maybe even this year you need to pray about whether you see your life being a life that moves overseas so that every day you can be in an environment where people don't know the gospel and you see God's patience displayed every day because you're walking around thousands of unbelievers who've never even heard the name of Jesus. May we seek after the things God's seeking after in 23, 2023, like more people knowing the gospel. May we also seek after personal holiness. There are more sins that we need to put off this year. There's more righteous deeds we need to put on. There's more love that we need to have for God and for one another. So let's do this together. Let this be our aim. You may notice that, at least I notice this, these two things, evangelism and discipleship, this is what we've been saying for a church has been our mission all along. We want to go see the, God, the glory of God spread broader and deeper. Hope you're encouraged that we want to do what the Bible says, but I hope that you want to, as a church, do what the Bible says together. Let's spread God's glory broader and keep talking about him. And let's spread it deeper in our own lives by growing in personal holiness this year. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your abundant patience. We live in a world that's worried, that's in a hurry, and God, many times we are too. But you're not. God, help us to trust that you are the God of all ages, that you're not threatened by time passing, and your plans are still coming to fruition. Help us to be faithful this year, Lord. And may you give us grace for every day and may you receive all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.